Hey, welcome back to Scholarships. This is Larry Alexander. I'm here with my co-host, Tone Gaines. You know, one quick uh, comment before I turn it over to Tone, uh, and that would be with all the conversation that's happening around diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, I would just encourage everyone listening to don't forget the inclusion piece. It's one thing to hire folks uh, from, from different backgrounds. It's another uh to confirm that their voice matters, right? And, and to allow them to speak and to hold space uh, in the rooms that they're in. So if you're in a position of power, always just be mindful of the inclusion piece and making sure that the diverse folks uh, have a voice and that you're making it clear that their voice matters. I'm actually gonna turn it right over to Tone to introduce our next guest. Uh, today, we got our, our guest, Walter Jean-Jacques, Walter Anthony Jean-Jacques, as he uh, will introduce himself. Um, and this is a guy I went to Notre Dame with. He's a he's always had this aura, this um, this this sense of being and purpose and intention that I've always appreciated. Um, and he's really killing it right now. Honestly, it's one of those one of those conversations that you get inspired by. You realize like it's it's tangible, it's real. I'm just so thankful that he decided to join our podcast for you know a conversation about what he has going on, what he's accomplished and what we should see in the future. So let's kick it off. So funny enough, I was there when, um, I was there when Walter had uh, basically said like, yo, I'm coming to Notre Dame. Um, he was at like Not an sure. intro. He was at an intro for, um, you know, just black students that um, were interested. And there were a few that were like, you know, well, we put them in this awkward position where we were like, hey, if you think you're gonna, I mean, have we convinced you that you should come to Notre Dame? And and Walter stood up and he was like, "Yeah, this this feels like home, essentially." And it was it was one of those moments where I felt like this aura from him, where I was just like, "Yo, this dude, he's a he's genuinely a good dude, well educated, but also just just trying to do the right thing." Like you just felt that from him, like very very much so a person of uh, service. Um, so I always wanted to get you on the pod, but um, you know the timing you had. Just got married. You've been making moves, moving up in the, yeah. in, the in the ranks and whatnot. So, um, you know, I'm just glad we could we had some we made some time to like get you on. Nah, I appreciate that because, like you said, like you've not only were you there during that time, you were there like during the the pivotal of my first year of law school, yeah, where yeah. like you know it was an up and down period, and just just to be able to be able to be speaking with you all and for you, for you to invite me to come, I'm truly honored and thankful. You know, just, just partaking and, and and just thankful for the work that that you all are doing with your podcast. Um, with that, walk us through your journey. So, talk to us about growing up, um, and you know your education. So you can start from like elementary to middle school and high school. Um, let's just start there. It's, yeah. it's always a good good place to start. Yeah. So, yeah, from the Newark area, um, went to this catholic elementary school all my life that was like right down the street from where i grew up mm-hmm. um that's all i knew ironically i started pre-k very much early um my grand i was raised with my with my grand grandmother and, and my my mother um mainly and then like my grandmother was like a babysitter so all the kids that that she um had under her wing were going to this local catholic school and so so much that my mom was like yeah like um, my birthday is early in January, so it's it's at a weird, mm-hmm. you know, time. So I started school when I was like three years old. And so like went to pre-K 
um, for two years. And could my mom could have had me like, you know, skip a grade, but she wanted me to go to pre-K for two years. But just at that time, yeah. I, I just was like, you know, just love education, love mm-hmm. education, but also was aware that like, um, I grew up in a, in a different place from, from, I would say things that I would see in TV. Mm-hmm. Um, like just walking down the street and just like, um, seeing things that like typically weren't being, were being, I guess, quote unquote, the white picket fence. Um, you know, for example, I remember going to a concert one day, my aunt who lived like in South Jersey, and then she came and we, she was about to go to the concert to see me um, um, sing. And then, you know, next thing you know, we walk out and her, her, uh, her windows are busted up. Crazy. And I'm like, oh, this is, this is, <laughs> you know, for a, for a six year old to see that, it, it was quite different. Um, and then I remember like, you know, across the street where people hanging on the corner. I grew up, I guess I grew up across the street from uh, what uh, people would quote unquote call like a crack house. Mm-hmm. So that was my environment. Um, I used to walk, walk from school, walk back. Um, and then I knew in terms of my education that like I was in a, in a system where that, you know, um, people would perceive as like, they didn't care about us because when I started sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher, she quit the second day. So I had a substitute teacher every year. Yeah. I had a substitute teacher every other, every other day. And Crazy. so, um, I was like, wow, is this life? And then I was telling my mother that I was like, yo, I'm finishing my homework. And it's like, they're giving us makeup work. And then at her job, she, she had a doctor who she was working under. My, my mom was an uh, administrative assistant in a hospital mm-hmm. in New Jersey. And she's, and he said, uh, I went to St. Benedict's and I feel like, uh, Walter would be a great fit to go to St. Benedict's prep. They start at seventh grade, he's in sixth grade. Um, if you need a recommendation from me, I'll do it. I remember my mother coming back from work and letting me know about the opportunity. And I was just, I was just at the time, I was like, oh, wow, I I'm, I'm, wasn't about that. Like I'm, I heard about St. Benedict's cause I had a friend of mine that went to all boys school. And at the time, like I said, I grew up, you know, going to my local Catholic school every day. Like it, I, I, that was not only was that like, you know, part of my education life, it was like a part of my life, you know, entirely because mm-hmm. it was right down the street from where, from my house. And so I'm like, you know, to make this culture shift and also to go from having to take the bus every day, I was like, oh, this is a lot. And like, um, and then Benedict's located downtown and downtown is crazy. Downtown Newark is very crazy. Yeah, and I I've was heard. just like, you know, I was like, I, I don't know if I want to do it. Then my mom was like, okay, just go, you know, go for the visit for a day and see. I remember going to visit for a day and then um, we have convocation. That's a uh, Benedict said, like when students come together and they like, you know, um, they have like a little, like what's called like a worship service in the morning. And then you see like the students are like, you know, basically like leading the school. Mm. You had student leaders leading the school. And I was like, oh, this is unique. I've never seen anything like this in my life. And so that was appealing for me. And then I remember um, leaving my visit then like running into what we call the principal, which is what we call a headmaster, Father Ed. And then he's speaking to me. And then I remember looking at the walls and the walls, all you can see is like a picture of black students and then the schools that they go to from Columbia, Princeton, Yale, Harvard. And I'm like, wow, like I've, although I'm, you know, I'm gonna miss, I was like, I'm I'm missing my school or the school, I don't wanna leave. Mm -hmm. I remember how how it felt to be like a black kid and then it wasn't like cool to be like getting good grades. 
And then with Benedict's, I'm like, wow, this is different. Like you have these, like, you know, everybody's black and then like prominent leaders and also getting good grades, like your GPA being posted. Like in my visit, I saw that and I'm like, I'm all in. Yeah. And then the rest of his history. Yeah. No, I, and just a step back, like every time I go on your 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 handle or your, your social media, for the most part, a lot of times you're posting like your your grandma, your your great grandma, like who your mom, your, like all of these pivotal people that have, uh, you know, been essential to to who you are. Right. Like St. Benedict's yeah. amazing. But I know it starts with the family. So just tell us about yeah. like your 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 upbringing. Yeah. So like Haitian descent, Haitian. Um, parents came to this country during the 1980s. Um, my father, uh, he came, my father went to high school. Father came from Haiti, went to high school in Brooklyn. Um, my mother came to, uh, upstate New York from Haiti. Um, and then my mother, my, my mother brought my mother, my grandmother who, um, raised me mostly um throughout my life also from haiti so i would say haitian culture is embedded within me so much so that like i took esl when i was in grade school and i was born here so like i'm very proud of my culture um it shaped the person uh yeah it shaped who i am today um i was very in tune although i was born here um i have so much allegiance to the haitian culture as well because like i have connections with like you know uh Haitian politics and um and just Haitian history throughout my life if you go through like my childhood home all you see is Haitian art and I think I fell in love with like black art because of that too um learning about the history of Haiti learning of Haiti being the first um you know black country to obtain its independence and this is my grandmother who would teach me about that right she didn't have any formalized education even in Haiti um so for her to give me by the word of mouth, you know, the importance of like, you know, black people throughout throughout the entire world. Um, I, I truly love that. And I feel like that became intertwined in who I became um, in terms of like how I matured in terms of um, my love for culture, my love for arts, my love for history, my love for political movements, my love for social justice. I derived that, I would say almost entirely from my grandmother because um, she really embedded that with me and even my my love for like you know uh education my grandmother didn't speak english um not until she got older but like we we i grew up watching like a different world to be quite honest right she she understood the importance of that she understood the importance of like seeing people that look like you and excelling and so like i truly appreciated that because i always tell her like i'm so thankful for you because by you just doing that i embodied i knew what college was at an early age because of that, right? I knew that I was going to college because I saw Whitley, I saw Dwayne Wayne, um, you know, in um, a different world. And that became part of like, you know, what I was gonna do. And it, it was so important because, you know, coming from where I come from and looking outside, you didn't get, you didn't have that. So like to be able to understand that, I truly appreciate my grandmother, I truly appreciate my family um, for, you know, finding ways to like show the importance of culture and, and history throughout my, throughout my upbringing. You said something earlier that I, I don't want to gloss over, right? It's like you went, it sounds like you went from an environment uh, like your initial school 
that didn't necessarily embrace education and, and, and celebrate yeah. uh, people that wanted to get it through academics, right? But then you went to St. Benedict's yeah. Prep, uh, and they created this environment where they celebrated academics, right? Like, talk a little bit about that, I guess, and just like the feeling that you felt when that, you know, when you made that transition. Wow. It was, to be honest, at first, I was there as a seventh grader. The first couple of months was hard because I was playing basketball and St. Benedict's is a basketball powerhouse. So I was at my local school and like, I told my mother, man, I can't even play on the basketball team. Um, but what shift my trajectory was that like, I remember it was convocation. And at the time at Benedict's, we had to go to school shirt and tie. And I'm like, wow, you know, when people think about like, you know, the cool kids, they like, they don't care about like going to school. They don't care about like academics or getting a high GPA, quote unquote, you a geek and you getting a good grades. That's that, that, that's, that's what it is. I remember when they announced the honor roll and all you can see the quote unquote popular black kids, 3.9 GPA, 4.0 GPA. And I'm like, wow, I feel at home. Like I can be myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and I took that, I'm like, okay, I can just flourish because although I was flourishing in my other school, it was kind of like, I was keeping it under the wraps. Like, I didn't want people to feel like, oh, this, he's mad corny. Cause he gets good grades or whatever. When you see young black men excelling and are, are like, are not shying away from that, you embrace that. And I feel like that's a formula that Benedict's loves. Like, and, and a formula that also that Benedict's that constantly utilizes and excels at because you have a lot of kids from Benedict's that come from the Newark area that, you know, come from places when you look outside, it's like, it's not cool to like, to be able to do your homework. It's not cool to be able to like, damn, I have to work on this science project or I have to work on, on this, you know, uh, 10 page report, or I have to be able to have these, go on these college visits or I'm gonna be applying to these schools. So Benedict's is like a safe space to that extent. On another end, Benedict's is a safe space for like black men who may be dealing with a lot at home and want a, a safe haven and want to have someone to talk to. Benedict's, a lot of people don't know this, Benedict's hat is like one, I think one of the only schools in the state of New Jersey, probably in, in, in America, especially in, within, the, within that environment that has its own therapy center given to students from seven to 12th grade, which was essential, right? A lot of us, we, we had a lot of things, you know, that we needed to unpack. And I feel like Benedict's understood that formula and it allows students who may have, you know, this blockage of stuff that they may be dealing with at home, that they need that support system to be able to unpack that so they can, you know, they can meet their, or they can um, meet their potential. And so I can honestly say I was a person that partook in that and it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. And, and for me to be able to succeed, I, I'm thankful for Benedict's and I'm also especially thankful for going through that, the, the therapy process while I was a student because we all had stuff that we needed to unpack. We all wanted to talk to people who were also going to with similar things at home um, that that helped us, you know, to be able to succeed. And that was a formula that I truly appreciated. And and that entire environment of brotherhood was second to none. To be able to have black teachers at a young age, it's so empowering. Uh, black teachers that want to, you know, rest rest in peace, uh, Mr. Peace who went to Yale. And, and you're able to see um, a person like that and you in seventh grade and you can and you can say, oh, he went to the Ivy League. I can go to the Ivy League. 
you it was so empowering and um it definitely shaped my um my trajectory it definitely even bolstered me with like okay i can do this like it's it's the norm because so and so did it i can be at this place as well too so mm-hmm. that was my benedict's journey it it was definitely foundational so obviously it sounds like they created an environment where college was already you know on the forefront of your mind so talk to us a little bit about the college decision and how you ultimately decided to go to columbia all right so benedicts did create that environment but i have to like once again go back to my grandmother with a different world that was the the catalyst in terms of going to college like i remember even when i was in my other school the other catholic school that i had a when i was in third grade i had a college list i knew college was 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 the pathway i remember people thought i was crazy even at that time i had like at that time i had like harvard or duke i'm a big duke basketball fan on my on my list um but when I entered Benedict's, I, like I said during my visit, I saw the list of colleges, Princeton, Columbia, um, Harvard, Yale. And I, I remember I told my mother, I was like, if I'm going through this journey, I'm going to be the top person in my class. Like, and I was. I, like, seventh grade, I had a, had a 4.0. Eighth grade, had a 4.0. My, my freshman year, had a 4.0. And that's when, I guess, People started to take me seriously in terms of like my academic prowess, especially um, teachers about like putting me in, in connections and with like, for example, I attended like a Georgetown alumni banquet my sophomore year in um, the Marriott Marquis in Times Square, meeting different Georgetown alum. And so that's at the time when I was just like, okay, these are, these are the schools that I'm thinking about. It was not until my junior year where um, and like, I was that type of kid when I was in school, like I, I couldn't wait to meet with the guidance counselor, to be honest, because I heard the different schools that like, you know, I was at Benedict's from seventh grade. So like every year, you know, they would announce the, the top schools that students would go to. So like, I think that competitiveness in me, I was like, I cannot wait to be able to like, okay, it's my turn. And so like, I was excited. I remember I told my mother, we, our school starts in the summer. So prior to my senior year, we had to meet with our guidance counselor. I was the first person in my class to sign up to meet with the guidance counselor. And I came with my mother. I was like, I already have my list. I had I had Columbia, um, Stanford, Yale, Brown. And this is the summer before my senior year. And I told my mother, let's visit Yale and Brown. And so I went to Yale. To be quite honest, didn't really like it. But like, this is gonna be really funny. But I watched the Gilmore Girls, and I heard about Yale via the Gilmore Girls, and I was like, oh, you know, hearing about George Bush went to Yale, all the top people went to Yale. So I was like, maybe I should go to Yale. Then I went to Brown, didn't really like Brown, but went back home, talked to my mother. I was like, yeah, I already signed up for an interview for Yale. Let's see what happens with Yale. But it wasn't like, it wasn't, it didn't like, you know. I wasn't brought into going to Yale, so to speak. It didn't, it didn't like, you know, it wasn't in, in, um, it wasn't like the perfect picture that I would have for myself of going to college. It was not until, like I said, um, I went back to Benedict's, I talked to my guidance counselor and he told me that uh, a, a mission officer from Columbia was coming to speak to us. And then I told him, you know, to be quite honest, the day the mission counselor is coming to speak is when I have my interview set up with Yale. 
Then he told me, you really want to, you know, be here to hear what this woman has to say. Then I was like, okay, I got to make the decision. It's, I might give up my opportunity to go to Yale to listen to this woman. And it's not 100% that I'm going to get into Columbia. But, you know, something inside of me told me, okay, listen, listen to him. I ended up listening to him. I ended up hearing the Columbia mission officer speak. She sold me and I was like, wow. I'm going to apply to Columbia. I ended up applying to Columbia. Um, didn't want to wait for regular decision. And I'm like, throughout my life, I've, I've, you know, I bet on myself. And I'm like, I'm going to bet on myself. And I'm going to apply early decision. And a lot of people might think it's crazy. I only applied to one school at that time. I had my list applied to one school. Ended up finishing um, my application November, October 17, which is crazy. Mind you, like, right? It's, a, it's your second month of your senior year in high school and you have to get your recommendation letters you have to fin have finished sat like I, like prior to that i already took like sat twos my junior year already took the sat um my junior year so i was ready to go and so i'm like i'm gonna put it out there whatever happens happens i ended up applying then um i ended up visiting columbia um just just after i applied there was a, a student that was at, uh, from Benedict that was at Columbia there already. Um, he was white. And he told me that, are you sure you want to get into Columbia? They already accepted somebody from Benedict the, the year before. And I'm like, back of my mind, no disrespect to him. My GPA was higher. Um, I'd even say this. I had won a art scholarship from the city of Newark to study abroad in Provence, France. Mm -hmm. That I just, just came from doing that. Um, I was all state prep and track. Um, I was president of Armada UN. So I, my resume was was better than his. And yeah, I'm like, had okay. It. You had it going. You had it yeah, going. I was like, I was like, all right, you think I'm, I'm all gonna right. get accepted? Yeah. <laughs> I ended up I ended up getting accepted and he was like, he was surprised. But yeah, that's that's my college story. <laughs> I've only been in Newark maybe once and I only went to the the, the airport. For those of us that have never been to Newark, can you just describe like the environment really quick and how much like being accepted to Columbia in that environment meant to you or to, to the, the community. Yeah. Back in the nineties when like I was, I was born 92 and lived in the, in the, in the, I would say the beginning and the transition, the nineties was crazy. Like people wouldn't want, want to walk outside. People would make fun of you. Like I have family members that lived in like central Jersey, New York city of like, Oh, you from, you 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 from you from Newark, okay, all right. Like, they look at you different. Like people would say that, like, oh, I go to Newark for the airport, or I'm I'm afraid to even like go down the street. There was a lot of gang activity. Um, it was kind of like if you're from Newark, you understand gang culture. It's like it's kind of like you have to understand gang culture to to quite honestly to know how to to live because any wrong decision you make any wrong uh shirt or color that you wear every any wrong phrase that 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 you that you say it's, it's life or death right um so it was something that like i always tell people this if you grow up if you grew up where i grew up you have to grow up early unfortunately you don't have a childhood right you don't you you can't you can't play outside a lot of times or you have to when you when you walk in from walking home from school, you gotta run inside because you don't know what's gonna happen. 
or a person like me, um, you're going to have stories of childhood that like, I remember like literally I'm in my basement. My mom says, get on the floor. They, we get robbed. Right. So it, it's, it's, it's stuff like that to be able um, to, 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 to take in and then getting accepted to Columbia. It, it was everything. It was just that I remember the day when um, my guidance counselor, he, and this is, it's so unique and I'm, and I'm thankful for it. People typically find out at 5 p.m. You know, they go online and they see their, 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 their decision. Um, you have to open the portal and you see their uh, acceptance letter. I found that I got into Columbia during lunch at 12. The, the, the mission counselor at Columbia called my guidance counselor, let him know that Walter was accepted. And that moment, I don't think, not only did I feel like I won, I felt like my entire community won because knowing that like where I came from, knowing that that like how how I like, you know, took it like a badge of honor of, of where I'm from. Like everywhere I go, I, I rep I run the way to the fullest. Um so it was it was everything to know what I had to deal with and, and the perception of, of that people have of us who come from Newark and how we're not supposed to we're not supposed to succeed. We're not supposed to be in the rooms. We're not supposed to have these opportunities to excel. We're supposed to we're just supposed to be basic. We just supposed to be want to go to like this entry level position. And I never saw myself like that. I never saw myself as being a person that wanted the the you know the bare minimum. I always wanted to, you know, excel and wanted to exceed the um expectations that people had on me because I knew based upon where I came from that there was all, already a a perception that a person would see just because of my zip code or just because of 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 you know my my city and I and I love that cuz I'm like you're going to see me I'm going to prove you wrong and I love carrying that I carried it like a badge of honor especially um especially when I went to Columbia to be quite honest because it opened my eyes to like wow like this is this is more than I can ever dream of. It's like you watching a movie. It's like I'm like I'm in the movie. Like I've yeah. never seen these type of people. I've never been in this environment. So yeah. I guess walk us through like your time at Columbia and just like you know how that was adjusting to the different you know culture shifts. I guess that you had to deal with. Whew. Uh, I remember going well. First and foremost, I did like a, a similar program like uh, Upward Bound. Uh, in New York, it's called HEOP, and then if, if you come from a, a place outside of New York, it's called the Na National Opportunity Program. So we had a program called the Academic Success Program for, they said, people that came from places like like Newark. We had to go to, we got to start at Columbia the summer prior to, to, the, to the first year. So I did that, and it was interesting because it's like, you meet people from like, I had like, my friend was from Long Beach, people from like uh, Compton people from like all different parts, people from Kansas too. So like, it, it was, it was, it was an interesting like experience to college. Um, especially I started in July and even at that time, I'm like, Oh wow. Like this is going to be, I'm people already have their perception of me because I come from, come from Newark and they feel like I cannot, you know, excel in this, I guess, academic arena. And so I ended up doing really well that summer um my freshman year my freshman year it was i was in my official freshman year when i started school post labor day uh it was a culture shock 
I mean, I went to I went to school throughout my life that was predominantly black. And then I remember seeing like it was a melting pot, different people from across the country. So I was like, wow, you had people that were from uh, that were from like England. You had people that were from China. You had people that were that were from Australia. You had people that were from even people from California or Texas. Um, and I was like, this is this is different for me. But I, I loved it because I was the type of person that I, you know, I loved culture. One of the reasons why, like, I also wanted to go to Columbia was that, like, I love the Harlem Renaissance. And so, like, I love culture. So I embraced it, um, got to meet different types of people. Um, also, one thing that I that I said prior to going to Columbia, I wanted to be a leader. Like, I wanted to leave a lasting imprint at Columbia. I was like, I was thankful to get into Columbia, yeah. but I wanted to come here and just be like, okay, when I come here, my kids, kids, kids will no doubt that I've been there. And so um, I can honestly say that like throughout my time there, that like I left a lasting imprint. <laughs> talk a little bit about that. Like talk about what did you what did you major in and then talk about some of the uh activities that you were involved in and just things of that nature. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a double major in political science and African American studies. Um at the time. I knew also too, I knew Columbia was a great fit for me because I wanted to to maximize my internship opportunity. I knew college, which is crazy to, to say, but I knew when I was in high school, I knew college was just not just about getting an education. It was um, putting yourself in the best position possible to exceed outside of the classroom. So I knew that majoring in poli-sci and AFM would prepare me to become the, the best person post um undergrad that i that i wanted to be i also wanted to be a lawyer and i knew that i wanted to 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 be in a place where that my writing um and my political analysis would be you know refined and i felt like poli-sci and afm would be the best fit for me um i love my courses um i ended up writing a thesis which is um which i did not believe i was going to do but i ended up doing and i ended up graduating department departmental honors from afm my thesis called the urban south attempt which I love Du Bois. And so like being able to coin that, um, that term during that time, it was extraordinary. Um, yeah, I was a, I would say a, pretty much involved with everything. So talk to us about um, post-college. So I, post-college, I ended up uh, teaching in Baltimore City Public Schools. Uh, that, that was a tough decision, but it was also, Education is a, I would say, is very prominent in terms of teachers in my family, my mother's side. My mother's father was a principal back in Haiti. My mother's brothers are teachers um, in Georgia. So education was always prominent for me. Also, too, Benedict's was very influential in terms of, like I said, having black male teachers. Um, to me, it was everything. And also, too, a person, like I said, I love education. So I wanted, I wanted to be in the classroom. But I, like I said, I also I knew at the time I wanted to become a lawyer, and I felt like I would not be the lawyer that I am today if it wasn't for Baltimore City Public Schools, because what I saw within the classroom, what I saw within the school district, made me become the better advocate that I am, because I was just there's something when you hear about what's happening with, with within the district or within the city of Baltimore, like I feel like for example. When people feel when people think about Baltimore, they think about the water, and so like definitely, definitely I'm like, oh, the water. yeah, water, yeah, 
and so like when when um when I'm before before I moved to Baltimore, I'm like I'm not gonna have my bias about Baltimore because of the wire, and so like I remember remember living in Baltimore, and I'm like yo, you have these phenomenal children, you have these phenomenal kids, you have this phenomenal community that I feel like people are neglecting. Mind you, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a time frame. So I started teaching in 2014 in Baltimore. Freddie Gray had been in Baltimore. Yeah, I remember so, the Freddie Gray when, stuff, yeah. So I, I was there during that time. And it was, like I said, it was such a pivotal time because for me, it was hard teaching. And I was going against the administration because I felt like, what? how could I not be an educator and an advocate if I don't inform my students, and I was a social studies teacher and an English teacher about what's happening inside of outside of the classroom. And I'm teaching, mind you, at the time, I'm teaching majority black students. And so I would always go back and forth with administration because I would inform my, my students of what happened with Mike Brown and, and um, Ferguson or what happened with Eric Garner in New York or what happened when Freddie Gray was happening, you know, in, in the Mondamin Mall in Baltimore, they needed to know that. And so that was my, 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 my first couple of years post um, Columbia was in, was in Baltimore City Public Schools. I made the transition um, to go to Penn because, well, prior to that, I made the transition. I'm like, it was hard for me to leave Baltimore, but I knew in order to become a better advocate, and to help the people within Baltimore City Public Schools, that I needed to become a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And I knew the, the type of lawyer that I wanted to become. Not only did I need a JD, but I needed a, a master's in policy because I knew I wanted to be a lawyer that, that, that not only attacked inequities via litigation, but as well as via policy as well. And so um, after my time in Baltimore, I ended up shifting and going to, going to Philadelphia um, and being blessed and being accepted at Penn, um, which was another story on its own. <laughs> yeah, and I, I loved, I remember you telling me you went to Penn prior to Notre Dame, and I was just like, I mean, these are schools that are like, I mean, people would, uh, you know, not die, but like they would, they would love to say they went to one of the three schools. Yeah. And to just mark those two off, off your list, um, amazing like i said I, it was always something i was just like and then, and then he's at notre dame like i was just it was, it was one of those moments where like like i said you had this aura of you um but talk to us about like your time at penn like what was it what was it about because it, it from what i'm gathering yeah. from what from you and and i've always had this but like just very intentional you know like very thought out very much so like yeah okay, this is what this is gonna help me do so tell us about your time at penn yeah um so like penn was like you said, um, and, and so thankful for your comments. It was intentional. Um, I knew that I wanted to get a master's of policy, but I wanted a program that was hands-on. I wanted a program that also too that was very um, interconnected with uh, what's happening on the ground. So Penn has a unique program. It's a, a year, year and a half. It's a master's of social policy. Um, it's based out of the school of social policy and practice at Penn. And prior to me even applying, I ended up going to campus and meeting up with the dean of Penn, who's now the provost of, of the entire, of the, the dean of, of my program, the School of Social Policy and Practice, who's now the provost of the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and I wanted to like pick his brain. 
because I knew that if I was going to invest my time into this program, I wanted to know how, like, what what is the the, um, the leadership and how I would be supported as a graduate student there. Because I feel like as a grad student, it's very important of how your professors and how administration is shaping your education. And so I ended up, I remember it was Labor Day, it was September, and I ended up um, going to campus and he was there and he was, you know, he was uh, gracious enough to open his um, his schedule and open his time to meet with me. And we spoke about like, you know, his background, he was from Brooklyn, he, he got his PhD from Columbia and what his foresight was for the program. And I asked him, you know, um, if I end up coming here, I would love to have you as a mentor. And and he and he said, if you come here, not only do I feel like you would excel, but this was, you know, pave the way and be the foundation to what you want to do after. And, you know, long story short, prior, okay, I applied to Penn, ended up getting accepted, um, knew that I, I needed to finish an internship, a policy internship to finish my uh, degree requirements. Um, I guess I was bold. I was like, okay, not only am I going to do this, finish my internship requirement, I'm going to apply for a year-long um, fellowship to work at Philadelphia City Council. So what I did was, I knew I was going to Penn. August 1st, um, I'm a type of, like I said, I'm a type of person I, I love to like match out or like plan out before things. So I applied for the Philadelphia City Council uh, Graduate Public Policy Fellowship. I ended up applying, didn't know I was gonna get accepted, but knew I was gonna be in Philadelphia for Penn um, and I got accepted. And I was like, how am I gonna go do this? Like graduate, your curriculum during your, um, during your graduate studies is very, 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 very intense. Especially the program is a year and a half. But I knew that like, you know, being, being in Philly, the best way to become the advocate, the best way to become the, um, the social justice advocate that I needed to be within the policy realm and so I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to make it work. So I was blessed to work, you know, in the office of the city council president in, in Philly for Philadelphia City Council. It was eye opening. It was a phenomenal experience. And it was very much a blessing because Philadelphia um, is so unique, especially as it pertains to a city council, because it's predominantly um, black. And so I loved it. It, 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 it was exciting. I think it also, um, it, it, it really helped me like, you know, utilize what I was learning in the classroom on the ground every day. And I truly enjoyed my experience there. It was, it was so hard. It was so hard for me to make the Notre Dame decision because I love Philadelphia so much. I fell in love with Philly. Um, and it, it was great to be able to, you know, study at Penn, but also too to work for the city of Philadelphia as well. Let's talk about Notre Dame Law School and that decision, and then let's get into some some real questions and start picking your brain and uh, your, your perspective more. First and foremost, I got to thank the Balsa uh, leadership, Tony. Your year, they did everything in terms of recruitment. Um, wow, I was recruited like crazy. Like I was getting calls, emails after yeah, I got they accepted. Was on it. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I was just like, okay, what is this about? So I remember going to, to Notre Dame. Thankfully, it was a beautiful day when I visited that weekend. Um, it was gorgeous. And one thing that Notre Dame does well, especially Balsa, is have the alumni come and utilize the home of one of our former professors who retired recently, Professor Dwight King. And all you can see, you see alumni, you see students just chilling. And I'm like, wow. 
this is appealing for me. I oh, I should have explained this earlier too. When I was in high school, I had got it accepted to a pre-college program to Notre Dame. So I didn't end up doing it. My family knew about Notre Dame prior to. Like my mom loved Notre Dame. She really loved Notre Dame. The only reason why I did not end up doing the pre-college program was, like I said, I did the Provence, France um, scholarship I got from Newark. That's why I didn't do it. So in the back of my mind, when I got accepted to Notre Dame, all my family thought I was going to Notre Dame. I was the only one that, like, okay, I have to wait and see and see what happens. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, like, when I went, that weekend was everything for me. Like, from the being able to interact with students, um, being able to see, um, you know, the the longer game, that was presented to me, too. Um, and hearing the, 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 I would say, what sold me, right, was one of our former professors now, I would say, unfortunately, the professor at Duke Law, Professor Veronica Root Martinez. Mm-hmm. She, was get, she was given an award at our, uh, our we had like a like alumni banquet. Um, it was in the, I believe the, we had utilized a, the golf house. And so I remember hearing her speak and it was kind of like, she was trying to like, you know, she like, I know there's like these uh, prospective students there in the crowd. And I'm like, there's a lot, there's other people there, but I felt like she was talking to me. Like, I felt like she was talking to me directly. And she said, you can go to any other school, but if you could come here and like, you know, basically excel utilizing the Notre Dame brand, you can, you can, you can like utilize that and, and be like a leader um, in, in, in such a unique and also an expansive way. That was, that was me. I'm like, I already have the leadership qualities in me. I can go back to Penn Law or I can go to Columbia Law and just be one of many. If I come to Notre Dame and excel and exceed, sky's the limit. And that's when I was like, I told them, I, like, I, you know, I, I, they probably thought I was crazy. I was like, yeah, I'm ex- I'm, I want to come here. At that moment, I said it, 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 was, it was a Saturday evening. Yep. I was like, yeah, I'm coming here. And so um, I truly believe Notre Dame saved my life. Um, it, it saved my life in so many different ways. Um, I would say like, you know, mentally, socially, um, especially professionally. Um, it opened so many doors that the kid from Newark who had um, who had dreamed about, like one of the reasons I wanted to become a lawyer is because I wanted to be Fergus Marshall, first and foremost. That was the reason. I knew I wanted to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Um, people thought I was crazy. Like I did a Black History Month report um, when, when I was about six or seven years old. And I was like, I want to become Fergus Marshall. And then literally the first couple weeks while I was at Notre Dame, um, my contract professor took my class um, out for coffee. He went around the circle. He asked us, what is your dream job? And then I'm like, oh, this guy probably has no connection or relationship with the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. I'm like, but it is what it is. I want to work at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. Literally that afternoon, I'm on an email chain, CC'd on the email chain, like, oh, this is my, uh, you know, fellow uh, Supreme Court law clerk who works at uh, LDF. And he, and he like, undersold him. He was a director of litigation at LDF. 
So mind you, I'm a first two weeks 1L networking <laughs> with yeah. the director of litigation at LDF and the rest is history. I ended up, you know, like Tony knows this, um, I ended up getting, you know, hired that 1L summer for LDF and that's that's to Notre Dame and Notre Dame opened so, up so many doors for me and I'm ever so thankful, you know, because like I said, it took the dream of that six-year-old kid from Newark and made it into a reality. So, yeah. Be yeah, no, it's fire. You know? yeah. The thing that's like, if you look at your resume, right, it's amazing. Like, I mean, any, just go, just go Columbia, Penn, Notre Dame. You are in your black. You're crazy um, attractive to big law, right? Like that would be, I mean, they would put you on every, yeah. whatever deal or whatever. What was, I guess, what has made this commitment to service so important to you throughout? Because like I said, you could do big law today if you wanted, honestly. But yeah. like you've always, since I've met you, you've always been like, yeah, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go this route. Like what's made you so certain that this is the route for you? I would say Newark, New Jersey. I would say that kid that that grew up and looked outside and and saw that like how people would perceive us and the kid that looked across the street and and he saw how like people were being pushed on the walls and like patted down and stopped their frisk. Um, I would say the kid that that knew that like people something was wrong and then people did not care what was happening. And it, that always caught my attention. I was always that type of person, like, why they don't care about us, right? Who's gonna fix this? Or like, can we? Can someone come and fix this, or do do I have to be the person that come yeah. and fix what's happening? And so, public service, I've always wanted to be a public servant. And everyone would say that. It was like, oh, why don't you go and do this corporate job and stuff like that? But it was always embedded in me. Um, and like I said, I wanted to become a lawyer because of Fergus Marshall. Like he was the person that I looked up to. Um, he, he, I wanted, I can say in terms of my trajectory and how things were intentional, it was like, what do I need to do in my life to become a LDF lawyer? That that's what it was. Like I want to be, I want to work for LDF because LDF was the creme of la creme when you think about like civil rights and social justice litigation and. And the people that came from like Fergan Marshall, uh, Constance Baker Motley, for example, Eric Holder uh, worked worked at LDF, LDF you know, like uh, uh, Deval Patrick, the first black governor of the Massachusetts. Um, so LDF was, was everything. And so that kid at that young age knew that he wanted to work at LDF and knew he wanted to be a public servant. And so like any anything else that was, you know, uh distracting me from ldf or distracting me from, from becoming a public servant um i didn't pay attention to like i was thankful and i understood and people people would say like your resume is, is is amazing but i'm like what i'm doing is to become the most educated to mm -hmm. to help the people from my community and so i'm thankful that i was given that that opportunity to be at ldf um i'm thankful that like right now um i had that opportunity and now i'm at the at the National Urban League, it's 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 everything and more to, to do that as well too, um, and it, and it's and it's it's definitely humbling because um, I could have went that path. Like I'm not gonna lie, some of the some of the moments it was, um, you know, 
um, I, I was tested. I was like, do I have to, do I, do I want to go that route? I can't go that route, especially after clerking. Um, there were so many opportunities where like we were getting different letters yeah, from yeah. law firms, um, that, that would recruit us, you know, um, as, as a, as a federal law clerk, but I'm like, this is a path that I always wanted to be on and I'm going to stick on to that path. Tell us about equal justice works and the kind of, uh, opportunity you had and the work that you did. It was, it was everything and more. One, because it opened my eyes to the leadership component, the national leadership component of pertaining to public service and public interest law um, that put me in the national arena. So I had the opportunity to represent the Midwest law schools and the National Advisory Committee for uh, Equal Justice Works at that time. I ended up attending our first uh, meeting, which was in DC. Um, so I met the different, um, what's called NAC members. Um, during that time, we had to plan, um, they had the largest, oh, Eagle Justice Works has the largest uh, public interest career fair in the country, and, and they also have uh, a panel that they had. And so we planned the panel, and we also planned uh, the career fair um, and conference. They had asked me to serve on the panel, and I, also I was surprised by that, but I was like, okay. Um, so I ended up, long story short, ended up going to the career fair conference in October, um, I served as a panelist, basically speaking about, you know, the events that I hosted as a, um, as the BALSA president, I became the BALSA president of my 2L year, and also as the vice president of the Exoneration Project. Um, I had brought um, Anthony Hinton. If you ever saw the movie Just Mercy, um, Anthony Hinton is played by two, uh, Ice Cube's son in the movie. Um, and so I brought him to campus. Um, I brought Carmen Perez Jordan to campus, who was one of the co-founders of Women's March on, on Washington. So I feel like there was just like, wow, how are you able to bring these, um, you know, social justice leaders and warriors to a campus like Notre Dame? Little did I know one of the people that was sitting in the audience during uh, my session when I served as a panelist in the Career Fair Conference Equal Justice Works was the president of Equal Justice Works. And so when December hits, I get a email, also ironically is during my uh, final period, my 2L final period, that you've been nominated to be on the board of directors of Equal Justice Works. And I'm like, wow, this is yeah. crazy. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't know what this means, but I, I'm just thankful for the nomination. The next month is my birthday on January 7th. I get the email that I've been selected to be on the board of directors. And that experience was everything and more. So I'll tell you who sits on the board of Eagle Justice Works, the Dean of Georgetown Law School, one of the federal judges in the DC Court of Appeals, um, presidents of you name it law school, the president of, of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, the former president, Sherilyn Eiffel, who was a, a civil rights like law, like, you know, um, warrior. Um, those are the type of people that I, the current president and CEO of the National Urban League, my boss, Mr. Moriel, um, sits on that board, board too. Um, so, like, to be on that ranks yeah. as a law school student and when I became an LDF lawyer because my term ended in 2021 um, was everything. And it, it, it was so foundational and it was so, I would say, instrumental um, also too. You had all the major GCs, general counsel, that sat on the board too, um, from you name it, from Hewlett Packard. So it was it was such a blessing because I'm like, wow, you, once again, you have this 
young black boy from Newark sitting in the rooms with these people, right? And and it, it was everything and more. I think the one thing, uh, or one of the things I appreciate about you, and it's always been um, prevalent anytime we talk, is just your, your humility, right? Like you, like it's it's crazy as I'm hearing you talk, like how surprised you are that certain people or certain entities would hire you. And and to me, I'm just like, it's a no brainer. Like in my mind, and I always have thought this, like, of course, whatever Walter said he's going to do, he's that's, it's just happening. It's more of a time thing. And, and you're always so thankful and so appreciative of like the opportunities you've been given. That is just like, it's one of those things where it, it, it reminds me to always be thankful and grateful for like any opportunity I have just because like, it's not one is not afforded and it's not just given to us like we have to work for it but two when you do get it like just knowing like damn like it could have went the other way you know like you could easily still be in newark uh just doing you know regular jobs which no no knock to that but like the kind of work that you do is so important and so vital um that you know you you never really ran or ran to like the money per se right like it'll come it always does yeah I guess. And I just wanted to talk to you, talk about like the things you do now, because I think that's what that's what's really fulfilling. Right. Like that's the richness that most people say they want, but they're like, ah, you know, I can't can't make that move yet. So talk to us about like what you do now and how fulfilling it can be, because I like I said, we talk all the time or enough to know, like, you know, what's going on. So talk to us about the work you do now. Wow. So. First and foremost, I would say that like the way you treat people, the way you carry yourself and bet on yourself. Because like for me to say now that I'm the assistant general counsel at the National Urban League is is something that I would never have imagined at this age. So um, I even share this part of my college story. My freshman year, I ended up applying for the internship at the National Urban League. At the time, they only accepted sophomores and juniors. But like I said, I always bet on myself. And I put in my application. I go have my interview. It said, you, you're a great interviewer, but we only accept sophomores and juniors. Sorry, we can't, we can't accept you. But I think this person wants to talk to you in another department. So another person from the Urban League interviews me. It was like, you're a great interviewer. Um, um, you're also a freshman. We can't accept you, but you interviewed so well that I'm going to give your resume to this other person, the other department, which ended up happening. Um, so long story short, I ended up obtaining an internship with the National Urban League for the affiliate service department, which was eye opening. Um, I had learned about the National Urban League through a class I took at, at Columbia called the New Negro Movement and knew about its you know its important work within the civil rights realm the, the urban league is the oldest um historical civil rights organization in the country and so i had the privilege to intern with them my freshman and sophomore year and it was everything it was foundational um in terms of my professional career i'll have to say the national urban league was foundational you know years passed by um i'm finishing my clerkship i'm either going to go back to ldf or I'm going to go to the National Urban League. 
I don't know there's an opportunity at the National Urban League. But because of the work that I put in as a freshman in a sophomore year, um, I'm informed there's an opportunity and that I should apply. I ended up applying in the back of my mind. I'm like, I'm thinking of that, that young, you know, um, 18 year old Walter who applied for the National Urban League internship when people felt like, you know, you're too young to get that opportunity. I ended up applying and Lo and behold, I get the phone call that like you've been hired as the assistant general counsel of the National Urban League. And it's been everything and more to be able to give back and to be able to help lead the legal department at the National Urban League. Um, it's eye opening because it's like um, to be this young in my legal career, to be this young in general, um, to be a assistant GC in the legal realm. It's 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 a blessing because um this is a position that i thought that like in my 40s and 50s i would entertain to be quite honest i after my clerkship i'm like i'm about to get a, a like a become like a assistant um what's called like a, a assistant counsel at ldf i didn't know that like this opportunity would open up and so um for me to help lead the legal department of a powerhouse of a civil rights organization like the national urban league it's everything to be able to impact communities from Los Angeles, California, all the way to like Orlando, Florida. It's everything to be able to work and impact um, and work with communities impacting Black people is everything. Um, and it and it makes me think about like all the decisions that I made in my life to bet on myself, all the decisions that I made in my life to go down this route, right? To go down this route, I didn't know that I would end up in this position when I made those decisions. But it was like I was being rewarded for like, you know, staying on the course, right? Knowing that like, if I really want to go down this path, the reward would come later. And it did. And it's 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 been phenomenal work. And I'm I'm so thankful to be back in a, in this environment. What sort of things right now are you trying to fight to impact change on? What what what's top of mind for you right now? Ooh, I I would have to say voting rights. There there's there's definitely a pinpoint attack on voting rights throughout the country, especially within the court system, right? The Voting Rights Act, Section Two, um, is being attacked. In particular, um, having to do with the protections for um, everyday people to bring up, you know, their personal lawsuits if they're being impacted about um, by different voting inequities. So if I have a issue in terms of, I feel that like my rights are being, um, you know, um, being taken away in the manner in which I vote, um, that protection in, um, in certain states is being impacted. Uh, for example, there's currently a case within the um, Eighth Circuit uh, in, the, in the Court of Appeals, United States Court of Appeals, um, where uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act um, is, is being litigated. And so, like, what I'm doing along as uh, assistant GC for the National Urban League, like, we're working with partners to find ways to address that via um, the courtroom. And so, um, whether that's being, you know, signing on as as um, amicus, uh, which is like, you know, friends of the court briefs um, to show the importance of, you know, civil rights as it pertains to the Voting Rights Act and um, making sure that the history of the National Urban League as an organization 
that tends to serve the needs of black people throughout the country um, is, is, you know, um, part of that, you know, decision making process when it comes to these judges deciding whether or not um, the rights of black people should be, um, you know, um, taken away as it relates to the Voting Rights Act. So that's what I've been doing um, in my particular role now. Um, and so like that carries on with what I've, you know, what I did when I was at LDF as well too. Um, we, we're in an age where that like, being in the courtroom is, is I would say is, is, is as impactful as being on the ground. And we're in an age where we need people that understand that. We're in an age where we need people that understand the importance of being a social advocate, like within the communities on the street, as well as being a social advocate, you know, knowing how to, you know, present and file this like phenomenal brief, right? Knowing what partners we need to, you know, um, come together and coalesce to submit this amicus brief, uh, knowing how to attack this legal issue, um, knowing when to raise this claim, um, especially as it pertains to voting rights. Um, I feel like we're at a place where the country is going backwards because there are certain people in the country that believe that the efforts that were done during the 1960s have, you know, um, have solved all the issues that we currently live in now. Um, and that we don't need the Voting Rights Act because the voting issue in America specifically pertaining to black people has been addressed. Um, and it, it is an issue that I, that I believe it is um, one of the prime civil rights issues of today. And it is something that like um, in my position um, that, I, that I, I have been tackling um, head on. And so I, I'm excited about that um, because I feel like it voting impacts so many different areas, right? Um, being able to have the opportunity to select your um, your leader um, it, within this uh, political system um, is impactful because it, it allows laws and policies to be passed that will impact an, an everyday citizen or everyday civilian. And so, and especially as it pertains to Black people, knowing the history that Black people within this country had to go through just to be able to walk down the street to cast their ballot. Um, and it's something that gets me up and energizes me every single day. And I'm proud to be, you know, uh, amongst peers um, helping to combat um, that inequity and helping to uphold the rights and the, um, the privileges and liberties that, um, you know, people that came before me um, did on the ground and also in the courtroom. Helping to continue that tradition is something that um, excites me every day. I think there has been an attack on voting rights for for the longest. I remember in Georgia, just like um, I believe it was Georgia, uh, over the license, like cert certain older black people, at least, and I'm, I could be misquoting, so don't don't take me out. But uh, like you know, they didn't have licenses, so that that was an issue because you could back in the day, you could just come up and you know have proof of address or, or proof of something, and yep. you we would be able to you would be able to, to vote. I guess. With the with the various attacks, I guess why do you think it's so important to uh, I guess continue to advocate for these rights rather than just sit back and and allow it to happen? I would say because both the history and the present day component of it, the history knowing how people were like given like you know fire ho hoses of like water, you know, trying to stop them <laughs> from going to vote. Mm -hmm. Not wanted 
especially black people in the South, um, having to take tests just to prove that you can vote, right? Mm -hmm. So being able to have fought those those battles, you know, during the 1960s and 70s, to be able to get rid of those like, you know, um, outlandish um, laws that were enforced just so people can vote. And now, like you said, now creating this new age of like restrictions, like having to show proof on proof on proof. Sometimes you need your license. Sometimes you need like your passport that you need to bring with you in certain states to, to be able to verify that you're a person. And these, I believe, are very like uh, particular attacks on black people that are saying that, okay, or you have to meet this poll uh, requirement in order to um, come here at this respective period of time, because maybe you have a two or three jobs that you, that you have to go to. So you can't have, uh, you can't have this poll be um, open to this uh, certain period of time. It has to end early. So there's so many different attacks that people are, you know, should be aware of. Um, And also too, especially um, in this age, because we have, you know, uh, certain leaders that 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 may be given power uh if we don't you know um exercise our right to vote we may leave um the opportunity or the person who will have the power to um make in the decision making process you know to to lead us with us not having the opportunity to even have a say in that matter and so i think it's important for us uh, especially in terms of black people um, if we believe that we are being impacted, if we believe that we are being disenfranchised, if we believe that we are being, you know, um, ridiculed via the law and policy, um, for us to have the opportunity to, to take a stand and that vote power means something, right? Um, I want people to understand that, like, your vote matters. It truly does. It truly does, both on a, a granular and also local level, right? If you're, in, if you're a person within a school board or within a, within a small town, who you vote for your school board matters, right? Because your, your, your child is within that respective school district and the school board member is making the policies and laws. Right now in Texas, we're dealing with a national case having to, do, to deal with um, hair discrimination, right? You have this kid that is being taken out of the classroom mm-hmm. beca- because of his braids, right? The reason why that, that policy and, and law is in place is because the school board members voted on that law. And they 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 made a decision that this law should be filed within my respective district. So that's an example, right? If a person has voted that that particular school board member or members out of the out of the school board, that law and policy would not be in place. So that's one example out of many that I can show how impactful voting is, right? You have the opportunity in each election, right? Not only in a presidential election, in each election to dictate how these shocking things that you see within the news, right? They may, you may have the opportunity to like, you know, provide a solution to that with your vote. Um, if you're a, a black person in America, if you are, are a woman in America, if you are a immigrant in America, right? You have an opportunity to, to, to um, change the way that people may control your day to day by voting. And I want people to picture that, right? As a as a person who has seen, you know, throughout this 10 years, 
how the world has changed um, in so many different ways. Um, I don't think, and I and I tell people this: this upcoming year, this come upcoming election, might be the most consequential election of my lifetime. And I think a lot of people don't understand that. It is so important. It is so important because the way that we see we see the life that we live in can dramatically change. And I feel like we've had a lot of examples without saying a particular election cycle that has shown us that. So we we are we are a uh, community that tends to forget a lot of things easily, right? Um, and I hope that we don't forget about what has happened within this past 10 years. What's top of mind for me right now is just, what are your thoughts generally uh, on what it means to be an advocate? Cool. Um, I would say one of the one of the um, individuals that I looked up to throughout my entire life, historical individual, is Malcolm X. Um, by any means necessary, right? Sometimes you have to go out your way and do things that typically um, people may not find uh, sexy, right? Um, doing work that you know that you're gonna have to like get your elbows dirty, right? You have to like for me. I remember my one L summer. I was in Montgomery, Alabama, working as a making sure that people were informed during the primary season, right? That wasn't a presidential election. That was a local election in Montgomery, Alabama. And they had to make sure that these, you know, individuals were informed of their electoral rights on the on the ground level. So I came from New York, took a plane, um, stayed in, in a local hotel. I'm thankful for the LDF for allowing me to be in, in um, informing poll worker, workers of their, and um, individuals that came to the election about their rights. Um, their opportunity to of uh, to vote, and so doing work like that that may not be sexy, but like being able to be on the ground and um, helping communities um, and making sure they're aware of inequities that they're being faced. I remember my my two L summer. I was in um, this area outside of Huntsville, Alabama, um, working with um, students who are being you know um, in who are being disenfranchised um, via school discipline policies. Um, and this is like this suburb, like very much rural area in like outside of Huntsville, Alabama and helping to plan a Know Your Rights campaign, um, helping to have like the communities and going door to door in this rural area of Alabama, recruiting community members to attend this Know Your Rights seminar. Um, doing work like that, I feel like that's what it means to be an advocate, right? When, when, at, when at times you're doing the non-sexy work, or knowing that you're you're impacting the community, so um, that's that's my defin definition of being an advocate. And and in that same vein, I guess one thing I always want to do because I I remember I was going to law school and uh, I was interning on Capitol Hill, and I remember talking to a lawyer who worked for I forget some congressman, and she was just like, "Don't go to law school; like it's expensive and all that stuff." And I guess what is your selling point? Because for me, for me, I was always like you we need more black attorneys or diverse attorneys in general in these yeah. rooms right like you talked about the various rooms you've been able to sit in and just having that 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 voice that could kind of like alter the conversation or, or even the policy what is your selling point for i guess younger lawyers or or younger individuals that are thinking about going to law school why they should um i guess aspire to be more of public service rather than like big law what's your selling point every day we deal with people that have the power 
to create and adjudicate the laws that are disproportionately imprisoning people that look like us, especially people of color. I've had the privilege of being a, a law clerk, a federal law clerk. Um, and so I saw when it came to different court proceedings, when you would have people that were being imprisoned and at times didn't have representation of people um, that looked like them. And, I, and I'm, that's one thing to me that I always tell young um, people of color, it is important because we live in a system that not only that people that don't look like us are making the laws, but we need representation to help people. Because at the end of the day, a lot of people that look like us understand in some ways the, the, the inequities, the language, the culture that we come from. So to, be, to become a better advocate, for spe especially for people within the criminal justice system, it is, an, it is crucial to have people that understand their culture, their surroundings, um, the, the inequities that they face, because that, will, that in, in, in ways will help you become a better advocate because you can, um, to the utmost ability, represent that person or whether it's in, in um, whether it's on the Hill, being utilizing your law degree to formulate the regulations, the laws and policies that are being um, you know, passed to create these opportunities or in, in some ways, take away the opportunities. To, have, to be that advocate, to be that voice, knowing that this law that you're about to create or this policy that you're about to enforce, how it impacts this res respective disenfranchised community. I feel it's important that like for people uh, to understand that law school provides you that opportunity, that law school provides you that opportunity to, to, to be a voice and to be an advocate, to be in those rooms and to be the, the, the litigator and also be the policymaker. And you, your your voice and, and your position will help to impact not only people that are being impacted today, but in generations to come. How would you define your purpose at this at this juncture in life? Like, how would you define your purpose? I feel like uh, in, in, in years to come, um, I'm, I'm always going to be an advocate, but I also want to be in the position where like I am informing and educating the masses on becoming these potential lawyers and becoming these policy advocates. So I, I would say eventually I'm gonna find myself back into the, some type of university capacity, um, hopefully um, educating um, future lawyers and, 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 and future policymakers. Um, I believe that's, that is my mission and that is my goal. Um, I love giving back and I love educating and I, and I love helping young people because um, I understand you know the position that I'm at um, I want to be able to allow people to even excel that. And so like, I, I would love that opportunity to be in some type of capacity, educating and, and, and informing the mass, the masses of becoming the next great like lawyer and policymaker.